indebted to Alan Chapman that he's agreed to come and speak to us. He's the first of our speakers. He is a native of Manchester. You've got a biographical information, or you should have, with you about him. He went to Lancaster University where he read history. He got a first-class honours degree and then came to Oxford where he then took his DPhil and has remained in Oxford under various guises, mainly tutoring um, history of science. And he's written, I think, eight books and a large number of publications and has appeared on television and is very well known for his work, particularly on 17th century mechanic, mechanicists. Now, he's going to talk to us about Dr. Robert Hooke and the origins of engineering science in the 17th century. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, nice. Thank you. May I say what an enormous honour it has been to be asked to give this by Professor Borthwick and to get really to the very beginnings of anything remotely like engineering science in Oxford. Obviously, of course, within my own remit of research, Robert Hooke screamed out right away long before the department was founded, but nonetheless, in many ways, Oxford's first consistent engineer. I use the word, though, consistent, because I think before I say something about Hooke, I should point out very clearly he was by no means at all Oxford's first person to be seriously interested in what we would now call engineering sciences. But he did it for the longest time, most consistently and most brilliantly. Who preceded him? Well, I would pick probably, and I think John, the projectionist, has shown me how to work this little contraption here. This gentleman. This is a medieval manuscript of about, 40, of about 1400 showing Richard of Wallingford. Richard of Wallingford, abbot of St. Albans, and with this extraordinary piece of machinery at the side of him. Richard of Wallingford was born in Wallingford, the son of a blacksmith, about 1290. He was educated by a local chapter of Benedictine monks who recognised his brilliance, arranged for him to come up to the new Benedictine college, then called Gloucester Hall, nowadays Worcester, where he took his degree, entered the Benedictine order, became abbot of St Albans, and was one of the greatest mechanical mathematicians of the entire Middle Ages. He was interested in computation, in instrumentation, and horology. And this circa 1400 manuscript of Richard shows his clock in much reduced form, and of course a complete, one of those wonderful medieval pictures which has everything in one. First of all, he's wearing the black habit of a Benedictine. He's clearly an abbot because his crozier points backwards rather than frontwards for a bishop. He's wearing a mitre. His great piece of machinery is at his side, and his face is blotched. He died of leprosy. Engineer, Benedictine abbot, clockmaker, and leper, all in the same picture. And this is the gentleman I'm presuming to talk about. This is Dr. Robert Hooke. Now, I should emphasize, first of all, we do not have an authentic picture of Robert Hooke. There is no known picture. And I have scoured, I can assure you, I've scoured Westminster School, where he was a boy, Christ Church in Oxford, and also the Royal Society, and drawn a blank at every occasion. And even looking at Hooke's surviving writings, it suggests that he never seemed to sit for anybody. And the only brief glimpse from 1675 in his diary where it might be said he sat for someone 
He did so many times in that day, so many other things in that day, unless the artist had had a high-speed Polaroid camera, she couldn't have caught his face. So therefore, where do we know what the face looks like? What we have from the late 17th century, one from his friend John Aubrey, and the other one from Richard Waller, his Royal Society obituarist, are two detailed descriptions of Hook the Man. And Rita Greer, a very good friend of mine who's a professional portrait painter, became fascinated by Hook and asked me for the, all the known descriptions. And she put this together as a sort of CID identikit picture, clothed in the appropriate garments and in the style of the man who taught Hook himself to paint, the great portrait painter Sir Peter Lely of the 1650s and 1660s. And so the long face, the, high, the, the, the eye colour, the nose, the hair colour, the general demeanour, the sunken, thin look, I suspect that this is about as near as we're going to get to what Dr. Robert Hooke looked like. Now, I call him the greatest mechanic of the age. That, of course, is not my own term. That term is applied to him by his great Oxford friend of 40-odd years standing, John Aubrey. And around 1689... Aubrey had a bright idea. I will put down the lives of all the famous men and women of more or less the present age. Either people he could meet and know, or whether there were people still around who had known these people in, let's say, back to the days of Queen Elizabeth I, roughly 100 years. And in fact, he writes a short, wonderful biography of Robert Hooke. This was later, of course, published in the 19th century by Andrew Clarke here in Oxford, as Aubrey's Brief Lives. And of course, they're a classic of English biographical literature. If any of you want to check this account, look at John Aubrey, Brief Lives, in the modern edition, the shortened version by Oliver Lawson Dick, even available in Penguin. Now, in fact, when Aubrey calls him the greatest mechanic of this present age, one has to bear in mind how language was used in those days. We often nowadays, of course, have the idea that the word mechanic and as some, I think, dare I use the term, illiterate contemporary historians have used it, where they speak of Hooke as some kind of um, lesser person, some kind of servant to Boyle and Wilkins and all of these people. He was only, after all, a mechanic. We have to bear in mind how the term was used. In the 17th century, the word was used in the Greek sense, a mechane. In other words, the idea of a contrivance or a device. So one who made contrivances and devices could be a very, very, very clever person indeed. Also, too, he was spoken of as a great inventor. And, of course, again, we have this sense of inventor. You invent a kitchen device or a cordless electric kettle or something like that. That was not the sense in which they understood it. Inventor in the 17th century again came from the Latin invenere, one who comes upon. It's closer in the modern sense to discoverer, research scientist, one who comes upon something rather than somebody who just makes a contraption which is useful, a tin opener or something like that. So therefore, when we take these two terms that were applied to Hook, mechanic, or the greatest mechanic of the age, the greatest contriver, divisor, perceiver of this age, and also one who came upon as an inventor, in the sense of one who makes great discoveries in nature. One therefore gets a better sense of his place. The word invention was widely used in the 17th century. And when it's read today, we often find it, well, people are a little bit puzzled why it's employed. 
For instance, we find that Francis Bacon, in the Silva Silvarum of, I think it's 1608, speaks of a century of inventions. 1,000 inventions, 10 by 100. And these are things to discover. They include things like the nature of botany, the nature of magnetism, the nature of heat, all of these things, what we today would call scientific researchers. The Marquis of Worcester, active when Hooke was a young man, wrote an extraordinary book in 1663 called A Century of Inventions, a rounded up hundred of convenient contraptions, discoveries, observations of nature, and so on. And in 1667, from a scrap of paper surviving in the Royal Society Library, we have the comment that by this date, Mr. Hooke had at least 106 inventions to his name, all of them in optics, let alone anything else. So you get a sense of what really is being used at this period. To therefore think of Hooke as a sort of banger of brass or sore of wood, as certain modern historians of sciences have contrived him to be, simply misses the point. We have to bear in mind that, though, that Hooke's status in the world of learning at that time was a very, very secure one. I think now, before we're going to look at his work in detail, I should fill you in with some bits of information about his life, where he comes from, why he comes to Oxford, and so on, and the extraordinary traits of ingenuity that literally go back to probably seven, eight, nine years old, which were subsequently recorded. He was born in 1635 at Freshwater on the Isle of Wight. His father was the perpetual curate of the parish, and the parish was under the patronage in those days of Christchurch. This meant, therefore, that I think there was a natural connection in later years to Christchurch. The Reverend Cardell Goodman was the rector, and the Reverend John Hook, his close friend, Cardell Goodman, for instance, was the trustee of John Hook's will, indicating close friendship, and he is called my very good friend by Robert's father, indicates, therefore, where he is on the island. Robert Hook's father had taught mathematics. I've searched to see whether he went to Oxford or Cambridge, and whilst there are several John Hooks in the registers of both universities for the right period, it's impossible to know which one, if any, were Robert's father. On the other hand, we know that he tutored on the island. He was a staunch Lordian royalist. He probably met King Charles I when the king was on the island following the period of the Civil War. He was certainly part of that whole movement. And Robert himself, when his father dies in 1648, when Robert is 13, somehow gets himself to Westminster School. How he gets there, we don't know. I suspect some kind of underground railway, as you might call it. Royalist Laudium, High Church, <coughs> Christ Church, Westminster. And hence, of course, the number of people you see following this path, not only Cardell Goodman, the rector, but the previous rector before Cardell Goodman, and this had been the Reverend Dr. Samuel Fell. Dean of Christchurch sometime later, himself a former Westminster man. And I think in the sheer mayhem of the Civil War, when Robert's father had died, probably, I suspect, of diabetes or some related disease from what we have of descriptions, that a number of well-disposed people simply chose to get him to Westminster, where he showed extraordinary brilliance under Richard Busby, and then from there to Christchurch, where, of course, his career took off. So, therefore, there's this connection but I would suggest, too, that for somebody of his mental disposition and extraordinarily questing imagination, there's also something else about having been born on the far 
western tip of the Isle of Wight. Now, I've been there several times, and you don't have to stand by the needles for more than a half an hour to see at least three different climatic changes. The sea changing colour, changing tide, and the light constantly changing. In other words, nature hits, the Atlantic hits the needles, and fresh water is only a mile and a half down the coast. Any bright boy sitting there looking at nature would have been aware of a number of things. The sheer forces and pressures in nature. Hook often used the term forces and pressures. The word energy had not yet entered the scientific vocabulary. That comes in the late 18th century. He was aware of the extraordinary powers of rebound, reflux, wind, blow, colour, light, and so on, all of which he saw as part of mechane, the great contrivance of nature. He also saw them too, another key thing. Anybody living on the northwestern tip of the island must have been fully familiar with ships trying to get into Portsmouth or Charles I's great gilded sterned battleships trying to get into Portsmouth, get in and out. Great, great men of war with a hundred guns like the Royal Sovereign, bucking into the wind with the tidal rips. When the tide is going that way, the wind is going that way, what does the ship do? It's a tremendous awareness in the raw forces of nature. Now, these, I think, were some of the things which coloured him. And we know, too, that as a boy on the island, he made devices, he made mechanic contrivances. Allegedly, he made a model ship with the guns that fired when it was floating on the nearby river. We're told also he made sundials, a mechanical clock, and was a brilliant natural artist who would ruddle with raw chalk on a piece of white board, could draw virtually anything. So you see those essential traits of a scientist and a mechanical scientist deeply present in his youth. We also know too that by the time he was at Westminster, he made a number of devices which were to be what you might call a kind of leitmotif through his entire professional career. We're told, for instance, that at Westminster, in addition to mastering Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and the normal curriculum of that school, he also invented 40 several ways of flying. 40! He was interested in gliders, helicopters, spinning devices, all manner of things. He learned, we're told, to play the organ. I presume he must have learned it in the headmaster Dr. Busby's house, because at that time, of course, liturgical music had been banned by the Puritans. There would have been no music in the abbey. We're told, too, he was fascinated by mathematical devices, fireworks, and, I suppose, typical to most boys, anything that would go bang. But what you see there is a fascination with mechanics, and something more than just that, mathematics as well. And especially on the intellectual dimension, he mastered, we are told, the first ten books of Euclid in a week. So we have the sheer skill at making things, we have the intellectual grasp of structures, and a fascination with motion, and what we would call energy, elasticity, rebound, and how structures work. Now these things, I think, are central to his whole understanding. He comes up to Oxford, so he claims, in 1653. But neither Christchurch nor Westminster have accurate enough records to be sure, because, of course, this was a chaotic period. Of course, Christchurch was losing and receiving new deans at this period, and, of course, Westminster School still kept the extraordinary surviving Busby, 
who went from Charles I through the Puritans, Charles II, James II, and into William III, one of the most extraordinary runs in the history of education. But nonetheless, we're not quite sure from anything but his own account when he came to Oxford. Now, in Oxford, quite apart from his normal studies, which would have been entirely classical, theological, and classically mathematical, he also became very much concerned with a number of men who were part of what would later be called the Royal Society, what they then called the Oxford Philosophical Club. This was probably his first and greatest early patron, the Reverend Dr. John Wilkins, Warden of Warren, and I'm honoured to say that his successor, Sir Neil Chalmers, is here this evening. And we find Wilkins, clergyman, scientist, philosopher. We know that Hooke had a lot to do with him, because there are a lot of references in later years. We have no surviving material from Hooke from this period, but in later years, there's a lot of it. For instance, there's a wonderful comment that in 1675, 20-odd years down the line, I was attending a lecture on the anatomy of birds at the Royal Society, given by one Dr. Croon. And Dr. Croon mentioned how birds flew and wing structures operated. And he says, Dr. Wilkins and I did contrive similar flying engines at Wadham 20 years ago. It still delights me the thought that the warden of Wadham and perhaps a number of senior fellows were trying to launch flying machines from the gardens of Wadham in the mid-1650s. But we have it, as it were, from the horse's mouth. Wilkins, we certainly know, was fascinated by flight. Wilkins had written a book in 1638 and followed it with another 10 years later, not only on mechanics, engineering, and applied structures, but also to how one might even fly to the moon by means of what he called flying chariots. In other words, some kind of mechanically propelled device now, this is my own reconstruction of Wilkins' flying chariot. <laughs> as near as we can get it from what everybody said about it. There you see it ascending from Wadham Quadrangle. It was in the form of a small pinnace or a small boat. We're told that it would have had great wings powered by clockwork, that this would have been wound up, that you would have had the machine that would have then taken you straight up. And Wilkins lived on the very, very incorrect but fortunate assumption that the Earth's pull only went up for 20 miles. So therefore, once you'd risen 20 miles, you could then just coast into the moon. <laughs> Wilkins, Hooke, many others, saw flying to the moon in much the same way that they saw flying to far distant countries, or shall we say, traveling and sailing to distant countries. And it's not for nothing that Hooke and various others of his generation speak of Magellans of the air, Columbuses of the air, drakes of the air. And so there's this whole extraordinary realisation that you might by engines, technos, mechane, invenere, literally fly to another world. Now this is not invented by Hooke. Hooke absorbs it at Westminster and Christchurch. It is in the air, quite literally. And I think it's not for nothing, therefore, that he finds Oxford an intensely congenial place to live and to work. Now, when he's here, we know he falls in with a number of highly influential figures. We're told, for instance, he was first tutored. He, in fact, admitted he was first tutored by the Reverend Dr. Seth Ward, at that time Professor of Astronomy, who taught him to observe transits, how to time things by means of a vibrating pendulum, just slightly before Huygens had invented the pendulum clock, and also seem to have encouraged Robert 
in his fascination with the nature of springs and the things he later claimed, the invention of the watch spring balance. We also, too, find that I suppose by the time he's about 20, 25, when he would, of course, have taken his degree, or at least he would have been through all the, the normal forms of his degree, but he didn't take his MA until 1662, he would then have actually been involved in trying to earn his living. He did not have much family wealth. He had a bit, but not a lot. And in this early body of the Royal Society, you find the attitude of a body of men, private gentlemen, investigating nature in the university, but independently of the university, I claim having a relationship to the university in, let's say, the same way that a modern dining club would have, or a sports club. In other words, a body of interested people, but not on the curriculum. And between them, undertaking investigations into many branches of nature. Central to that was the belief that nature was a great machine. It was a great contrivance. It's not for nothing, too, that clergymen were so thick on the ground in this experimental group. In fact, there were more clergymen in it than laymen. And I think, too, they saw natural philosophy, as then called it, experimental science, as studying the great engine made by God. So literally, the study of nature is a divine activity in its own right. So you're studying the mechanos, literally, of the Almighty. And so this, I think, is the thing which is a very, very powerful current in the whole way in which these men thought of the nature of science. Now, they get their ideas from people like Francis Bacon, of 40, 50 years before, whose Novum or Garmin had first popularized experimentation. And, of course, form an idea contra the prevailing academic philosophy of Aristotle, that nature was not an organism. Classical philosophy had seen nature as an organism, as a sort of sentient thing where one thing touched another thing and it responded. This is implicit in all of the scientific and medical philosophies of Aristotle. And these philosophies have dominated Western and Arabic thought from the classical time, or at least from the early Christian centuries, right down to about 1600. What you're finding, though, with these new people, they're saying nature is not an organism. Nature is an engine. It is a machine. It is perfect in its workings, and we can understand that perfection in the same way that we might understand the contriving of a great clock or some other machine. And it's not for nothing that Boyle, the Honourable Robert Boyle, who, of course, becomes one of Hooke's other patrons, friends, and lifelong coffee-drinking chums, actually uses the analogy to nature as the great clock of Strasbourg. In 1660, the most complex piece of machinery in the world was the great clock of Strasbourg, with all of its ornamental figures, its astronomical dials, its saints that paraded and bowed, and the carillons of bells that played their tune. What we're doing, he says, as we would call scientists, is studying that clock and determining how it works. Now, once again, this is a very, very powerful ingredient in Hooke's intellectual makeup, the dynamics of what make him think. Now, Boyle, too, is a massively influential figure. He works with Boyle as, quite literally, a paid assistant. Presumably when his Christchurch scholarship had run out, and we're told he was given the place of a singing man at Christchurch, and as, of course, at the time then, the, uh, there would have been no music in the cathedral, he would have received, presumably, the endowment of a chorister. He lived off that. But then, presumably, that expired, and he needed to find paid work. We know, first of all, he works for Thomas Willis, the great anatomist, 
the man who establishes the modern science of neurology and coins the term in 1664. It had been him, Willis, who taught Hooke how to perform dissections, including of the brain, how to perform chemical operations, and also to, to work with him in his house in Merton Street, just facing Merton College Gate. And one can see right away that house today. There's a, a plaque on the wall of where Thomas Willis lived. Christchurch man forced out of the college by the Puritans and working partly as a working doctor and then spending his money and his energies in developing scientific experimentation. So he therefore would have learned anatomy. And why is anatomy so crucial for engineers? The anatomists were discovering that the human body is a machine. The way the joints, the muscles, the limbs, everything worked suggested a great engine. A great engine with an immortal soul, but nonetheless a great engine. So therefore dissection is avidly pursued at this period. And I have no problem in seeing in Hooke his fascination with engineering structures related to skeletons, nerves, muscles, and that one central thing of all animals, elastic tissue, muscle. Why do certain things stretch and go back? Like I say, this forms a sort of light motif in Hooke's thinking. Why does the wind bound one way and go another? Why do the tides do the same thing? Why does the moon have various seemingly strange pulls on the earth? And why, again, are natural objects such as muscles pulling one way and then pulling the other? All of these fill into the way which he sees nature as a machine on every level. Boyle and he become very close friends. And, of course, as we're saying in a few moments, Boyle is the person who develops the air pump. Hooke, of course, develops it for him with a whole series of extraordinary and spectacular researches after 1658. And so we have this extraordinary body of people with whom he's knocking around as a sort of young friend, paid assistant, and whatever else he was doing to earn his money. He was doing this in Oxford from certainly 1653 to 1662, when his ent enterprises moved to London with the newly founded Royal Society, but he never lost Oxford connections. His letters are constantly giving regards to people in Oxford. He revisited the city several times. And I think it's nice to know, too, that Hooke was actually given his MA without examination. In fact, he never seems to have taken a BA. But, in fact, Edward Hyde, Lord Clarendon, just gave him an MA in 1662. Why? I think, by that date, Hooke had become so prominent so well connected in the new royal society, so highly respected in the learned, that it was felt we at least need to regularise his position and give him an MA, almost in honoris causa. And so we now suddenly find he is curator of experiments to the Royal Society, 1662. He is given an Oxford MA, and the year after, 1663, is elected FRS. Now, again, for those people who suggest that Hooke was some kind of mechanic, most happy beating brass or drinking with bricklers, one just simply has to look at the track record. Son of clergy, Westminster, Christchurch, knocking around with some of the greatest intellects of the day, MA without examination, curator of experiments to the Royal Society, FRS at 27. They don't quite sound down market achievements to me. Now, this, therefore, gets us to the man himself. 
hook by the time of his mid-twenties, and by the time of publishing, I would argue, second to Newton's Principia, the most influential scientific book of the entire 17th century, Micrographia, or some observations, some physiological observations of minute bodies conducted with the aid of magnifying glasses. Published January 1665. Now, that, I think, launches Hook by the age of 30, securely onto the international scene. He is being corresponded and talked about in Italy, in Paris, in Leiden, and so on. He is a famous man by this date. And one of the rather charming things I have to admit I find in relation to Hooke's fame is that in 1664, Samuel Pepys, famous as the diarist, and would later, of course, become the great diarist, happens to mention knowing a few fellows of the Royal Society, and on a particular day, being invited to drink coffee with a group of men after a Royal Society meeting. Oh, he really is thrilled at this. And then one of the FRSs wants to take them home to his house for dinner. And Mr. Pepys is invited and even gets a lift in the coach with this pack of distinguished men. And he says, Mr. Hook was most impressive. And it's all Mr. Hook this, Mr. Hook that. In other words, the dominant figure is Robert Hook. Again, of course, the status of the man is absolutely without any equivocation. But what now about his actual intellectual developments and achievements insofar as what you would call engineering structures are concerned. In the preface to Micrographia in 1665, he gives a sort of potted history of what he sees as the history of science. He, of course, follows the standard Protestant line of the period. The Greeks had been wonderful. The Greeks had made geometry, they'd found mathematics, they'd discovered the earth was round, all of these things. And then there had been a long, long dead period, the Middle Ages. Hated, of course, by 16th century, 17th century, especially Protestants. During that period, nothing had happened. Knowledge had stymied, stymied. And, of course, people had been just lost in what was seen as endless quiddities and discussions about nothing. Then, you'd have the great geographical discoveries, which had shocked the world into new ideas. And, of course, says Hooke, in the last 150 years, since 1500, we have discovered more things about nature than the entire 2,000 years before. I wouldn't quite agree, but nonetheless, it shows you where he's coming from. What he's arguing has happened is that man's senses have been sharpened. What has taken place is that we have found ways of prying deeper into nature. And he lists them. The ship, which after all takes you to places which you can't get to without them. Discover continents in oceans you'd never know without them. Galileo, his great, great hero, Galileo's telescopic discoveries, his own microscopic discoveries, Boyle and his work on the air pump, and many other devices. He calls his instruments artificial organs, insofar that they augment and strengthen one's natural organs. They enable you to see, feel, perceive, quantify, and calculate things that your normal five senses can't see for you. And he sees this as responsible for the great rush forward in scientific innovation. And, of course, what he sees as the headlong future growth of science. It is, of course, a profoundly mechanistic vision. It's certainly rooted to the use of the word invenere, coming upon all the time. And, of course, it presumes nature is a great machine. Now, also, too, 
Micrographia does another thing, which I think is of great, great significance. And I'll be showing you some pictures of this as we go along. What you find in Micrographia, he starts off by looking at man-made objects. And these are the finest and the most delicate things that could be made. A sharpened razor or surgical lancet's end. The finest piece of Chinese silk. All kinds of things of this sort. What we would class as the most exquisite workmanship of human manufacture. Under the microscope, no more than the 20 or 30 or 40 magnifications you could get in his day. And they are as coarse and as crude as anything. Yet, he says, you look at God's handiwork in nature, flies, insects, plants, things of this sort, and the higher you rack up the magnification, and he could probably just about squeeze about a hundred out of his microscope, you suddenly find things getting more and more and more beautiful. So, in other words, human construction is crude. Natural construction, divine construction, is more and more perfect the more you look. His famous engraving of the blue fly is spectacular. He looks at the wings of this creature and looks at their engineering form. And he gets into the question about how insects fly. This is quite extraordinary. And you can see the recapitulation with Dr. Wilkins running around Wadham Garden with wings on his back 20 odd years before. What you've got, what he starts to say is this. Why do some insects, such as flies, have what he calls hard and glassy wings? And others, such as moths and butterflies, have soft and downy wings. Why is it that the fly and the bee and the wasp buzz, and the moth and the butterfly don't? It must have something to do with mechanical buoyancy in the air. Look at a fly's wing, it's so hard it can trap no air. Yet you look at the white stuff you get at a slow insect's wings, the butterfly's wings, are these rather like little water wings that somehow trap air? and make that wing naturally buoyant. You then start looking at their structures. You find that the fly's wing, the further out it goes, the finer and the more filamental the structure becomes. And also to how the latticing gets more complicated. He is delighted at the internal beauty of a fly's wing as a natural engineering structure. And then he goes on to suggest this. How many times a minute does a fly's wing beat? Now, addressing yourself to that one in 1664 was not easy. He described an experiment which, to me, is just a sheer piece of genius in physics experimentation. He says, I caught a, a young, fresh blue fly. Exactly how, he doesn't say. He then tells us they took the quill of a pen and put a blob of glue on the end, and somehow, after presumably infinite patience, made the blue fly sit in the glue with its feet. <laughs> it now couldn't fly away. He then takes it out and tilts it through different angles and notices change in the buzz pattern. In other words, when the fly thinks it's going that way, that way, that way, or whichever. This must be because the fly's wings are generating different shock waves in the air. He then makes another suggestion. If one took a vial or a stringed instrument and Hook, I think, had perfect pitch, and therefore he could get the exact sound of the fly's wing and tune an instrument, not, of course, in pitch with it, but perhaps several octaves down, and then have a long rope, and then tune that long rope to give the same twang, but, of course, very, very, very low down. By upscaling, 
you could then calculate how many times a minute the fly's wing would need to beat to give that note four or five octaves above middle C. He doesn't give an exact figure, but he says several thousand times a minute. Now, considering the limited experimental resources, you see that mind, the idea of catch a fly and turn a piece of biological examination into a piece of mechanical engineering. And the application of mathematics to this work, I think, is quite extraordinary. And this runs through Hooke. This is how his mind goes. So natural engineering structures are central to him. Crystals, too. And, of course, I realise with Professor Fruin Jenkin here, which was a central part of his influence, the nature of crystals were a thing of great, great interest. Why did they have the patterns they did? Hooke is an early atomist. It's hardly surprising, considering his pupillage to Boyle, and he develops a very, very early theory of close packing. In fact, Micrographia has a number of illustrations of what he thinks of as blow-ups of bits of crystal, where he draws lots and lots and lots of little balls. But then I don't think he just thought the crystals were full of lots of little balls. I think he thought the whole of nature was full of little balls. Because you now start to get to how Robert Hooke thought nature in its vastness operated, from the microscopic to literally the cosmological level. Hooke saw vibration as at the heart of all nature, or more correctly, as he may call it, motion. He believed that everything in nature was made up of some kind of particulate structure, and that that whole thing was in vibration. It depended on the nature and the amplitude of vibration, whether you could hear it, touch it, feel it, smell it, fly with it, or whatever. It's a very, very early form of what you might call a grand universal theory. And I think even when one looks at people like Stephen Hawking today, you find the ancestry of where like, people like that think today. And of course, people like Lord Rees today in a unified theory of nature. Hooke, I think, leads the way to the idea of a unified theory of nature. I've suggested that Hooke thinks of energy, what we would call energy. He called force, power, rebound, whatever. If you could imagine, let's say, one of these gigantic modern supermarkets, these gigantic metal boxes, completely packed tight with rubber balls, and you took a hammer and went and banged the side of them, and you'd have all sorts of vibrations resonating through that mass. I think he thought of nature like that. He saw light like that, why we see the light of the stars, and he sees everything as, as it were, long pointers being pushed, or the equivalent of contiguous balls all knocking into each other with no space beyond them. This leads him to, to a wonderful theory of the mechanics of light. They were often told, without much explanation, that Robert Hooke invented the theory of light being in waves. He comes up with a wonderful explanation, which he develops first from 1664 and takes it beyond. He says that in nature, there appear to be two primary colours, based on this prior hypothesis that shock waves, reverberation, boom, sinusoidal motions run through nature. There seem to be two primary colours. There's blue and there's red. He hypothesises this. Perhaps when red enters our retina, it creates, through resonances within the optic nerve, a sense of redness in the imagination. When blue goes through in the opposite mathematical direction, a sense of blueness. And hence, as the rest of the curve snakes through, all the other colours, as the blues and the reds mix infinitely. 
And of course, this is not just a theory. He reconstructs an elegant experiment, which I've tried. It's tricky, but it works. Take, as he says, a two-foot glass bolt head, or what we would nowadays call a long laboratory um, conical cylinder or, or conical flask. Fill it with the purest water you can find. He mentions it in London in his day, let it settle for a day, but that's a rather <laughs> interesting sign. Float on the top of it a little piece of wood or metal with a small hole bored in, and of course then put black cloth around it to stop internal reflections. Let a little ray of sunlight come through the bottom. And when you're having the light acutely bent, you'll find redness visible inside the glass. When you have the sun high above, blueness in the glass. And he says, as I change the positions, I could get all the colours of the rainbow. In other words, as the sinusoidal words were either acute or whether they were obtuse. Now, of course, this was to be itself a massive, massive influence on Newton. We often forget this, but if you look at Newton's paper to the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, 1672, the first experimental work he did with the prism, he says, I was led to these researches from a paradox in Mr. Hooke's micrography, as he called it. Perhaps the only time in his life when Newton actually gave an acknowledgement to Robert Hooke. But there it is in 1672, Philosophical Transactions. Now, this is again an indication of his way in which vibration and motion were a study. They lead him to his other great mechanical fascination, elasticity. Elasticity as well, of course, which lies at the work on insects. How do these feeble little muscles enable flies to move with such incredible speed? What is muscle? How does it work? He often refers to it as muscule. He mentions on several occasions in his writings attempting to make artificial muscle. But of course, in the days prior to vulcanized rubber materials, this really meant some kind of leather or animal product, which would usually lose its, its as we would have called in Lancashire in my youth, its bant, its stretch, very, very quickly. Now, what he starts to look at is why you have movement in metal. Why do steel springs have an immense capacity for flux, reflux, bound, rebound? And this, of course, I think takes him into the other great thing for which we think of him as famous, horology and clocks. Of course, he does not invent the clock spring. Peter Henlein of Nuremberg had been manufacturing portable watches since at least 1520. The idea of a long, thin strip of steel coiled together and then used for release of energy was an established device. Hook asks, why? Why, for instance, can you do it with steel, but not with copper? Why can you do it with wood, but not with ceramic? This must have something to do with the way in which these balls, these pellets, these atoms are arranged. Some of them must grate upon each other and stop. Others must roll over each other and be flexible. He then looks at muscle under the microscope. In the 1680s, he has a series of studies of muscle material with a slightly better microscope being made by John Marshall of that time. He mentions how they look normally, how a thin sliver of muscle looks when pulled. And then he comes up with a wonderful model for elasticity. He says that all muscular material consists of a series of flat laminae, plates. And between the flat laminae are balls that are held in place by some kind of gristly material. And what happens when you activate a muscle? The two laminae slide. 
and they slide on the balls. In other words, muscular action is flat surfaces moving against round surfaces. Now, this is not a bad observation for 1684. He also tries it for different animals, and also to, for a number of living structures, as well as artificial materials. And, of course, he sees a parallel with what you would see in the cellular structure of wood and the natural engineering of a piece of wood, and what you would see in, let's say, a piece of material taken from a dog or a cat or something like that. So, again, it's mechanism that he sees at the heart of nature. Now, I want to look at a number of the areas where he did particular famous work in Oxford. The first of these, of course, is his work with Boyle on the nature of the vacuum. Perhaps the beginning of his career, when he's employed by Boyle around 1685, when he would have been 23 years old, when he would have been still, presumably, his money would have run out from Christchurch, and he was recognised as very, very bright and needing to be taken in hand. He was working, of course, at premises owned by John Cross, the famous Oxford apothecary, at a site now occupied by University College, and, of course, marked by a plaque in the street. There would have been one of the old Oxford houses there, probably four or five storeys, and Boyle lived there. Boyle, of course, didn't just live there. He had premises on Pall Mall in London. He owned an estate at Stalbridge in Wiltshire, and his father had been one of the richest Irishmen of the day. And so, in consequence, therefore, living in an apothecary's premises on the high, he comes here simply because his friend, Dr. Wilkins of Wadham, invites him. I suspect he comes to live there because he would have already have had a good alchemical laboratory for his disposal. But what he wants to do is to take experiments further with the nature of attenuation of air. A thing discovered 10 or 15 years before by Evangelista Torricelli in Italy, who had found that you could produce contra-Aristotle, a certain space with absolutely nothing whatsoever in it, a vacuum. Contra-Aristotle, because as Aristotle makes clear, nature abhorreth a vacuum. They can't exist. Nature is full. So therefore, if nature is full, where do the holes in it come from? And if you can start finding holes in nature, you've got tons of stuff to start investigating there in terms of experimental science. But Boyle wants a device better than the very, very limited vacuums produced so far, and invites Hooke to design him a machine. Effectively today, ask a bright 23-year-old postgraduate to design you a revolutionary piece of research equipment. Hooke, of course, knew he needed a piston and a cylinder. He wanted a large glass vessel called the receiver, transparent, in which you could see things going on inside. So you not only had a controlled experiment, but also to one that was totally and utterly visible in three dimensions. I think it shows something of Hooke's brilliance as a designer, that he comes up with this concept of a machine. He doesn't build it himself. A man called Ralph Gratrix, a, a pumping engineer builder, actually did the hands-on work. And my suspicion is, too, a good London gunmaker bored the cylinder for the actual air pump itself. The, the, the one group of men, the gunmakers and the gunsmiths, who were guaranteed to get as near to a perfectly cylindrical structure as you could. The device was up and running by the early part of 1659. They put in it a whole variety of things which are not really part of the lecture today. The key thing is you produce replicable, controllable vacuums. Hooke, of course, not only goes on to revolutionise our thinking with Boyle about what the vacuum is, its chemical effects, its physiological effects, all manner of things, but also, too, 
the idea that you get to this whole new realm of nature by mechamos, mechane, invention, and then too by invenere coming upon. It's the model of how that scientific model worked, the engineering view of how you took nature to bits. Then, in addition to this, the work on the vacuum had stimulated another area, and that was how you could actually possibly predict the weather. Now, the earliest barometers, again, were Italian, and nobody seemed to know why the mercury rose and fell in a seemingly um, erratic form. The common generally held view was held in accordance with Descartes. Descartes had suggested that the moon's orbit around the Earth, but that the moon was emitting some kind of um, particle streams, and that when the moon got to a particular part in the sky, the particle streams would depress the mercury, and hence, of course, when the moon went back, the mercury would come up again. But experimentally, there was no relationship to the level of the mercury and the moon's position. In Oxford, in 1658, Hooke, Boyle, and their great-great mutual Wadham chum, Christopher Wren, future Sir Christopher Wren, are experimenting with barometers in the warden's lodgings in Wadham and in Boyle's premises on the high. They come to realize that whilst there is no relationship to the moon, there's certainly a relationship to approaching storm systems. The atmosphere has elasticity. You can thin it, thicken it. You can do that in the air pump, and in nature, it thickens and thins. It's so powerful that even a heavy column of mercury responds to it. And all of a sudden, it's realized that the application of this invenere, this mechanic to nature, produced yet another useful invention. Once Hooker got his teeth into the idea of the barometer, he just runs with it. And he submits a number of papers to the Royal Society. And after 1665, with the founding of the Philosophical Transactions, the world's longest-running publication, he actually illustrates, describes, and measures them. He devises a wonderful machine, which is what he calls his wheel barometer. Because if you have only a tiny amount of motion in the mercury, how can you magnify it? He has the idea of putting a float on the mercury. There's a cylinder running through the, the float and a weight. And what occurs is that the mercury responds ever so slightly. What occurs then is that the central axis of the float will rotate a lot, and a finger rotates around a dial. I have a picture in a moment. Now, what you start to see here is that wonderful application, that chain of events. What is a vacuum? Nobody knew they existed in 1640. They're found to be meteorologically sensitive by 1658. You then invent a machine which leads to weather production. And then he and his chum, Ren, really get their heads together and invent what is really the world's first self-recording scientific instrument. From about 1662 onwards, and published in bits and referred to and so on over the next 20 odd years, they invent what they call their weather clock. The weather clock consisted of a good timepiece and the energy from the timepiece was used to drive one or two recording barrels. For instance, it was possible to use a way in which when you had changes in barometric pressure inside the instrument, then a constantly rotating plate onto which you put a piece of paper and which made a trace on the piece of paper once a day would fluctuate. So in other words, you could take pressure. 
You could take rainfall. You could take, hopefully, temperature on a regular basis. Now, of course, the device was not a success. Obviously, the technology was not up to it. But the crucial thing is that leap, the realization that you discover a natural principle, you mechanize it, you turn it for utility, and it, in turn, will lead to more contrivances as science bounds ahead. Once you've learned how to, as it were, tweak the natural machine artificially, then there's no limitation, it seems, to where you can go. Horology, another of Hooke's major, major interests. The one today where perhaps he is most famous, and in the wake, of course, of the discovery of his diary, uh, which is now safely, fortunately, in possession of the Royal Society, his, his, his jotted diary of a few years ago, what everybody wanted to know, does this newly discovered document tell us more about his work on clocks? Now, I'm not concerned with whether Hooke or Christian Huygens invented the balance spring. There's good evidence for both. But Hooke tells us this, in 1675, not only when his own diary is running daily on clock springs and the devices of clock springs and how to improve them on all manner of things, but also, too, he makes a number of retrospective remarks. For instance, sometime shortly after 1660, he tells us he not only devised a good workable hairspring balance for portable timepieces, but that also several members of the Royal Society wished him to enter into a bond which would actually see it patented and had produce a profit. Of course, patents in those days are not what they are today. You have no regular patenting system. It normally meant something like obtaining a private act of parliament, a colossally expensive procedure. We don't quite know when Hooke does this, but in 1675, he tells us that it took place shortly after the happy restoration of his present majesty. The restoration was 1660, so therefore it would probably sometime shortly after 1660. Now, what form Hooke's early springs took, we don't know. But what you see here once more is that a mechanical principle of action, reaction, action, reaction through a spring control, you could apply this to a device which would then actually have great practical benefit, especially, of course, for finding, as he hoped, the longitude at sea, a device which would not be brought to perfection for another 100 years until John Harrison, because it was the mechanical and technological and engineering problems in producing a reliable sea clock were unimagined in 1660. But nonetheless, the direction, I think, is very, very important. He does extensive work, too, on the improvement of telescopes and lenses. In 1666, he has a ding-dong series of exchanges with Adrien Azou, the great Parisian astronomer and mathematician, about how best to make lenses. Hooke devised a lens-making machine, the purpose of which was to give a perfect symmetrical curve to a piece of glass up to 15 inches in diameter. Of course, clearly beyond the technical resources of the day. He actually comes out with one wonderful I think, off-guarded remark to Azim. He says that certain parts of the moon's surface remind him of the fair champagne pastures of Salisbury Plain. Exactly how you see Salisbury Plain on the moon totally beats me, but the fair champagne pastures of Salisbury Plain. He even suggests that you may be able to see things on it the size of sheep on Salisbury Plain. If you only rack up the mechanism more so you can make bigger lenses. 
And I have to say this with complete credit, Adrian Azut says back to him, in colloquial term, pull the other leg, Robert. We don't believe it. Because simply the technology of the day could not make lenses of that diameter, or 400 feet focal length. But the imagination is there. How to use a machine to create that kind of device? So that you have mechanos, you have science, producing brand new knowledge. And then beyond that, Hooke produces a whole cluster of useful, what you might call practical inventions. Perhaps the most famous is his famous machine for producing clock and precision gears. Instead of using the normal method used by a clockmaker or a working mechanic of having a specially shaped file for doing each tooth in turn and perhaps not quite getting the right number on the wheel, Hook invents a controlled mechanism for the automatic cutting of teeth, the ancestor of every modern gear cutting machine. He also, too, experiments with devices for how to drive energy around corners. The famous usage of the universal joint comes from a mechanism for how to drive a pointer round corners on an astronomical instrument scale. And all of these devices become part of his extraordinary imaginative world. I want now to show the rest of these slides in fairly rapid order because I think I've discussed most of the content as we've gone along and I find it much easier to speak to you like this than to fiddle with technology at the same time. But let me now show you pictures of some of these devices. Oh dear, has it gone to sleep? It was working beautifully before. Ah, there we are. Thank you. Ah, that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, this, of course, is his patron, Robert Boyle, patron and lifelong friend, uh, who left him his best microscopes in his will in 1691, and, of course, just behind the famous air pump devised by Hooke. And here is his wonderful device for shortening the long focal lengths of the great telescopes of the day with use of mirror systems. Of course, it didn't work because you couldn't make optics of perfection enough to make it operate. You couldn't make mirrors of sufficient flatness to give you the necessary perfect reflection. The idea is there. But this drawing contains the first usage of the universal joint. The purpose of the universal joint was to control a scale. So when you turn this little screw you actually could move the instrument across a scale. And, of course, the famous air pump. Uh, the original thing about three feet high, and there is an almost exact copy on display in the Museum of the History of Science in Broad Street, just down the road. The great glass receiver at the top, the great piston and suction device, probably made by a gunmaker at the bottom, but Hooke's own design and invention, as he tells us. Now, here are some natural structures. Hooke was, as I say, fascinated by natural engineering. Water crystals, hoarfrost, hoarfrost under high magnification. Why does nature produce this perfect geometry? And why do natural engineering forms occur? The famous engraving of the blue fly of 1665. Look at how he catches in that wing, the dissected wing, how the structure gets thinner and more flimsy as it gets to the edges and how the cross-bracing works as it goes. Under high magnification, too, 
he realized that there was a sort of transparent cellular structure that held as a sort of material that covered the bracings. Here again to sections of feather, the extraordinary beauty of how feathers hold together. And, of course, crystal structures. I mentioned close packing a few moments ago. These are some of his attempts at close packing. And, of course, some of these are pieces of iron pyrites. Why do they have these wonderful, wonderful planes and characteristic colours? Lamp flames. Why is it that when you dissect a flame, Hook was the first person to examine a flame as a geometrical and physical structure? Why, when the wick absorbs the oil and you find the shape, why do you have this lovely dark tulip in the middle, the glowing yellow aureole around it, and why, when you take a thin silver tube and poke it into the middle of the flame out here, you can then start a second flame out here. What is actually happening in the combustive process, and why, as it burns, do you have this beautiful natural shape always taking place? And, of course, here, the famous, famous 1678 drawing of the nature of springs. I'd like to make a few remarks to finish, though. Um, you mentioned the thing that I guess most undergraduates know about Hooke, which is Hooke's Law. But that seems to be, well, one element of a, a really remarkable man. And I think it's fair to say we've heard remarkable talk this evening. We started off with the Needles and the Isle of Wight. We've been to Westminster, Oxford, and the Royal Society. We started off with a really a definition of mechanics, which is not the man who comes to mend the washing machine, which is what engineers get to be called these days. We've flown over Wadham College, which I think is eminently satisfactory. Um, we've heard about anatomy, which I must admit I hadn't realised Hook was so involved with. And it's nice that you know, anatomy is fed, in, fed into the idea of machines, engineering analysis, and of course biomedical engineering is a boom area in this department now, so things have almost gone full circle. Yep. Um, we've heard about his theories for the microscales and macroscales, even grand unified theories of physics came into light. Um, we've heard about the influence of Newton, of, of, of uh, Hooke on Newton and Wren and their interactions, and the universal joint. A standard piece of mechanical engineering, which is nice to know where it originally came from. I think we've had a wonderful talk, so I'd like to ask the audience to thank Alan again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you once again for the honour of being asked to give this lecture. Thank you. Um, just uh, by way of sales promotion, my, my very good friend Paul Kent from Christchurch and I, um, my own biography of Hook England's Leonardo and the book of essays which came out of Paul and I, the conference which we were involved with in 2003 for Hook's Tercentenary. Uh, this one has a particularly strong Oxford connection. Thank you.